Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Let's get ready to go against the grain. Michelle, welcome back. Hope you had a fun time. It was wonderful. Thank you. It is wonderful. Just to even get away for a day. You yeah. know, I went to the beach. See, I saw some boat races, NASCAR on the ocean. Not a thing I had known about before. It was very exciting. It. I saw some very fast boats almost tip over. What could be cooler than that? <laughs> that is fun. And I got to talk to my grandparents. It was wonderful. You know, I look back on on the time that I spent with my grandparents. Of course, they're they're long, long gone. But, you know, looking back I, I didn't realize when I was a little kid the import of some of the stories that my grandfather told me, like missing work one day to go to a Sacco and Vanzetti rally Whoa, in Pittsburgh. Cool. You know, so yeah. cool. Yeah. My my grandfather told me once when I was a little kid that um he had his paycheck. It was payday one day. And he went to the Frantic Savings and Loan in Mercer, Pennsylvania to cash his paycheck. And when he was standing in line, John Dillinger came in with his gang and robbed the bank. And I always thought, oh, that's so cool. When when I went to write my own book, I wanted to tell that story. But I thought it was probably apocryphal. Mm -hmm. It it probably, you know, maybe John Dillinger had robbed a bank in town. My grandfather wasn't there, whatever. So I went to the Mercer County, Pennsylvania Historical Society, and I found the original coverage. And they interviewed my grandfather in the bank. How dare you doubt him? Right after I should have never doubted him. Anyway. God bless your grandparents. You're lucky to have them. You know, I met my, I like have memories of at least four of my great grandparents, right? That's wild. So it happens when your parents have you pretty young. Yeah, no, I definitely like I've met them all. But like, I remember, I remember talking to my mom's, my my mom's grandparents and uh, I think my father's grandmother. That's fantastic. Pretty cool. And my nieces and nephews are also going to, uh, you know, they're old enough now that they're going to remember yeah. their, my grandparents, their great grandparents. I think yeah. that's wonderful. Families. Pretty cool. If you've got a good one. You can say that again. Got some uh, gross news to yeah. start off with. Yeah, I this apologize is for this, but really oof, a, a new report by Oxfam. Uh, this is being released as the world's ultra wealthy and elite convene in Davos. 573 new billionaires have cropped up in the past two years of the global health crisis. This is as, so it means the pandemic created a billionaire at the rate of one every 30 hours. Outrageous. And then it makes an interesting contrast. It said this was all happening while an estimated 263 million more people were expected to fall into extreme poverty in 2022. That's a rate of 1 million people falling into extreme poverty every 33 hours. Mm -hmm. At about the same pace as we create billionaires, we are allowing people to, you know, fall into the kind of poverty that dramatically shortens your life. It is a disgusting situation. Uh, you know, I know people don't, they probably don't need to be reminded of what a billion is, but a billion is a thousand millions. Yeah. So you're a millionaire 1,000 times over. Yeah. It's probably too much money to spend unless you're yeah. buying dumb cryptocurrency. Right. <laughs> and then you just you're might as NFTs. well just throw it away. I want this billion dollar NFT that in a week will be worth 10 cents. Yeah. So a director uh, from Oxfam told Market Watch what we have all witnessed, right? Which is that inequality has been rising for some time, but the pandemic supercharged it and that billionaires have made more money in the last 24 months in the pandemic than they did in the last 23 years combined. 
That's wild. And of course, they didn't do this against the wills of our governments. No. I think this is important to point out. They did it with enormous assistance from them, Mm -hmm. all in the name of protecting us us regular people and keeping our society intact. And in the case of the United States, that was by giving regular Americans uh, about $2,000 and some temporary tax breaks if you have children and pumping, I mean, quite literally untold amounts of money, right? Certainly difficult to count, but I think deliberately obscured untold amounts from the Federal Reserve into markets. Right. Vaguely markets to maintain liquidity. Yes. Right. So it's not accidental that this happened. It just sort of all of these processes were accelerated as suddenly the government has to, you know, in more acute circumstances, step in and take care of the people it's supposed to take care of. Right. And we see who'd got the, the lion's share of the caretaking. Right. Yeah. But don't worry, John. Because the head of the U.N. World Food Program is in Davos, too, and he's telling billionaires it's time to step up. So, yeah, problem okay, solved. That'll, I love hearing, yeah, that'll do it. I love hearing these people ask billionaires to do something good. This uh, is, of course, about specifically the threat of global food insecurity. The WFP is in Davos, too. I don't know. I, I guess they're trying to explain why uh, starvation isn't profitable. And that's why we should try to prevent it, not just because it's a terrible thing to see other people suffer. And that, of course, we have a moral obligation yeah. to do something about it. This, of course, stems from the flap the head of the WFP had with uh, Elon Musk, where he mm-hmm. was pr- actually not quite correctly quoted and saying, you know, six trillion, six billion dollars could end world poverty. It was he was a little bit more nuanced than that. And Elon Musk I came out and that. said, tell me how and I'll do it. Yeah. And now he's put that money into some kind of foundation. The World Food Program says they haven't gotten any of it. But right. It's sort of neither here nor there because asking billionaires to do things that are, you know, counter to their money making is going to be fruitless. Yes, you have to make them. Michelle, an odd thing happened yesterday morning that's just now hitting the news Uh, in Santa Ana, California. A guy drove his car up onto the sidewalk in front of an elementary school and hit and injured three young children. I know. That's not even the the bad part. The bad part is when the cops ran over to the car, they found an incendiary device in the car. They wouldn't describe it, but they said it was not an explosive. It was an incendiary device. And the driver was found to have stabbed himself in the stomach. So uh, they're investigating. There were rumors initially that it was a terrorist attack gone bad. Now they're saying no. It looks like this guy was having some kind of a mental health crisis. Mm. And uh, although the children are hospitalized, three of them, none of them are in serious condition. So coming out of Los Angeles. What a weird story. Isn't that odd? Yeah. I don't know. Did, did you guys talk at all yesterday about that New York Times editorial from Friday? No. This is in the oh, we'll file this under um, refreshing. Uh, it's it's at least well, this is news you can read uh, that doesn't leave you with the sense that you are being led down the garden path. Oh, this is about Forbes. I have a, I have another thing to tell you about the New York Times editorial in a little bit. This is about Forbes. Forbes today in its investing segment 
uh, notes that with two more Nordic countries joining yeah. NATO, the real winners yeah. are American defense companies. Oh, boy, are they. Yes. Hey, yo. He's talking about Finland and Sweden, of course, and he says they are going to open up a big new market for American defense contractors. It's going to be a big win for Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, and Northrop Grumman. And the reason I pointed this out is not because it's news, right? We've talked about this on the show a lot, but because there is this tendency in, like, Forbes, in the Wall Street Journal, to some extent in Market Watch, to these uh, media organs that are devoted to business and finance and money making, to actually be the most clear-eyed about politics. Because they are overtly all about helping people make money. They don't have to pretend that they have any other goals. And so, you know, they don't have to act like there's more at stake. And it's their job to assess who is going to benefit and who is going to lose from a certain situation. And of course, if you actually want to understand what's going on, whether or not you're in the market for it, that is an important aspect of analysis to identify these particular parties. So, mm-hmm. you know, thank you, Forbes, for just laying this out. You know, uh, another thing there that, that, I think most Americans don't understand that when we hear these these big numbers, 40 billion for Ukraine, 20 billion for Ukraine, we're not just writing checks and sending them to the Ukrainians. Almost all of this money goes directly to U.S. arms manufacturers. Right. And then the arms go or the systems or the ships or the jets or whatever go to Ukraine. Yeah. But this money is almost entirely kept within the United States. And it's propped up the the defense uh, industry for generations. Yeah. And now if these countries do join NATO, they will be obligated to increase their defense spending. Absolutely right. It says Finland's already ordered 64 new F-35s. There you go. More importantly, this is from Forbes. Aligning with NATO is a commitment to interoperability with American defense ecosystems. Yes. Of course, this is going to benefit U.S. contractors. The market's going to expand. Uh, and it says the the F-35ification of European nice. armies might be a bigger deal, though, which gives me an opportunity to just have another chuckle about the F-35 and ask if that's really what they want to do. Seriously. If they want to effectively defend themselves. It's notoriously poorly designed and hard to handle. And wasn't it Mark Sloboda who told us just a week ago that the Swedes and the Finns already generally are interoperable mm-hmm. with uh, with American uh, weapons and systems? Mm-hmm. But they're going to have to spend more now anyway. Absolutely. They're going to have to buy more of, of these things. Yeah. There's no political will to decrease spending anywhere these days. And so, yeah, this is a this is, you know, advice for investors. Yeah. Buy Raytheon, Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman right now. The other thing it noted is uh, that I, I think we have talked about this before the war in Ukraine. Support for NATO membership in Finland was about 20 to 30 percent of the population. And then AP reported a few days back that it's reached 70 percent, uh, which I think you have to, you know, Credit to Russia. Right. <laughs> driving. I mean, right. you know, who knows how the question was worded, but, you know, you have to think that this this war has, ex- I will say, accelerated the NATO expansion in those regions. Yes. Because it's silly to act as I though agree. NATO wasn't expanding anyway, just not necessarily northward. Right. Uh, but that does seem to have been an acceleration. So I think it's interesting. I mean, if you want to really see if you want to actually see some clear eyed analysis of politics, Go go look at the people who are watching the money. I think I, I you know yes, it's it's at least somebody is saying it. You know, yeah. And when the when the rest of the market is crashing mm-hmm. and defense stocks are skyrocketing, well, then it's pretty clear something's up. Yeah. 
The other thing that was interesting, and now this is the the New York Times editorial board on Friday, uh, and then followed by the Washington Post today, have both allowed some questioning of, uh, let's say, political and media orthodoxy on Ukraine. And so this is obviously there is some appetite for this. I don't know if it's because, uh, you know, you have a, a cohort of Republicans who are increasingly vocal about opposing more U.S. investment, because, of course, every time every time the Times and the Post decide to diversify their editorial um Mm-hmm. You know, editorial component, their opinion component. What do they do? They just put on more Republicans. That, yeah, oh, here, do. look, we're not. That's we're exactly not just what blue. They do. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's not actually intellectual diversity mm-hmm. at all. But whatever the reason, uh, there is a a little bit of a trend of of questioning some aspects for our support for Ukraine. Uh, the Times editorial on Friday noted that there were extraordinary costs and serious dangers associated with the support. And yet there were lots of questions that Biden hasn't answered for the American public with regard to the continued involvement of the U.S. in the conflict and sort of actually raised some questions that we've been raising, like, is the U.S. trying to end the conflict or is it trying to permanently weaken Russia? Uh, you know, is the goal to destabilize Putin or have him removed? Do we intend to try Vladimir Putin himself as a war criminal? Are we trying to avoid a wider war? And then how does crowing about providing U.S. intelligence to kill Russians and sink one of their ships achieve this? Right. Which is a good question for The New Very York Times to question. be asking. I'm surprised um, they're asking it. The Post was not the editorial board itself. It was uh, an opinion piece by Katrina Vanden, a name I've never actually said out loud. Hoyville or Hoovel, would you say? Hoovel. Yep. Katrina Vanden Hoovel. Yeah, uh, she's she's quite a big deal here in Washington. Yes, she is. A wife of Stephen Cohen, right? That's who right. was the great uh, Russia analyst That's who died right. earlier this year, last mm-hmm. year, I believe. Um, she says, this is obviously a proxy war. And as such... Shouldn't the ramifications, perils and costs of the war be a central topic of media coverage? And yet instead, what you have is sort of a a one sided, uh, sometimes even non-existent discussion and debate. Uh, And she asked, you know, why why are we smearing and ostracizing people who talk about history and offer context uh, about the West's precipitating role in the war? Why do we treat them as though they are excusing Russia's criminal attack when they aren't? Uh, why are more people who know better not challenging the orthodox U.S. political media narrative and also saying it's ridiculous at a time that fascist or near fascist neo-fascist revivalism is a genuine problem in Europe and the United States? Why is it taboo to discuss Ukraine's history and the role of nationalist far right and Nazi forces in the country we are flooding with weapons? And also notes, you know, as as you know, this sort of echoes back to the Forbes story. Uh, that the people who are most likely to personally benefit from prolonging this war are the ones who are featured day in and day out on cable news. Absolutely true. So, I mean, this is I, I think that this is probably a, you know, this is a an important step, I think, to note in coverage of the war. Right. Yes. If, if this is not just a sort of token like, OK, now it's been a couple of months. Now we can have one or two people pop up and go, hey, yeah, we've got a couple yeah. questions. But if it continues, then, you know, that'll that'll be a positive evolution in this coverage. I look forward to that day when we can have an actual debate in the U.S. media. And we haven't been able to have that so far. No. And what are we, uh, $55 billion in? And now it's okay to say, hey, what do you think the impact of this is Mm going to be? 
Yeah, it's a little bit too late. I know that our our guest is waiting for us. I have one quick thing to say. Uh, One of the things, one of the other things that we're watching is the possibility of NATO sending warships to the Black Sea. There have been some rumblings in the media. NATO made a decision in February to not send warships into the Black Sea so as not to sort of accidentally cause uh, an incident. Well, Denmark yesterday said that it would begin providing harpoon anti-ship missiles to the Ukrainian Navy, and that has led to renewed speculation that NATO may ramp things up again by sending those warships. So they're not on their way over yet, but it's something that we're going to be watching. Yep. Among lots of other things. All right. We've got lots of stuff to get into in the rest of the show. So we'll take a quick break here. You are listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are getting into some of the uh, news and policy statements Joe Biden has been making on his trip to East Asia. Uh, you know, we talked about how this the trip started off rocky with uh, an arrest yeah. in, in South Korea. Uh, but we have more, uh, you know, globally consequential issues to deal with now. Uh, we we have what came out of Biden's meeting with the new South Korean president, Yoon Suk-yeol. We have Joe Biden again muddying U.S. policy toward Taiwan, just on the fly. And we have a meeting of the Quad, that is the U.S., India, Australia, and Japan. Getting into all of this with us is K.J. No. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific. K.J., thank you for being here. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Let's start with this statement by uh, issued by Biden and Yoon after their meeting. You described it as uh, an escalation of U.S. economic and military aggression against both China and North Korea. And also, you know, a, a reflection of South Korea's total incorporation into the U.S.'s new Cold War on China. And so I, I wanted to just ask you to tell us what you thought was noteworthy in this statement, uh, particularly on U.S. and South Korean nuclear deterrence and their military posture regarding China and North Korea, about the role of Japan in these plans and that trilateral relationship, and about the role South Korea will play in American economic, cyber, and propaganda warfare against China. Yes, exactly. Um, Michelle. Uh, there are three words that can ca- uh, that can characterize the outcome of this meeting, and those are escalate, escalate, and escalate. Literally, a ritual of obeisance by uh, Yun Sagyal towards the United States. And what we see is they've talked about extended nuclear deterrence, that is nuclear escalation, and a return to CBID. This is the posture that North Korea should uh, completely. Uh, denuclearize before anything can be negotiated. These will all escalate tensions with North Korea. And North Korea is simply a pretext to escalate tensions with China. It's also a very explicit, comprehensive uh, escalation of war with China, in particular the incorporation of South Korea into U.S. hybrid war against China in all 
warfighting domain. So we're talking about cyber warfare, economic warfare, tech warfare, space warfare, and of course, ideological warfare. It's also clear that they want South Korea to fight in all areas where the U.S. and China might come into contention, including the South China Sea and Taiwan. And then we see massive enclosure and decoupling or block forming against China. So we're talking about, uh, you know, enclosure of the Internet, of 5G and 60 uh, systems. We're talking about enclosure of the trade and economic supply chains, uh, in particular for chips, fuel and energy and metals. And then the um, defense sector supply chain enmeshment uh, for research and production. Uh, and and then um, in particular regarding nuclear deterrence, uh, there is uh, the nuclear military posture is really about escalation and the incorporation of uh, Korea and Japan into and the U.S. into a single trilateral bloc. Uh, J I refer to this JACUS, J-A-K-U-S, uh, and that will result in uh, you know total subservience and uh, subcontracting of Korea against uh, China. I'm interested in the sort of escalation with regard to the South China Sea, because that to me has been it's been an interesting area for a long time. You know, the U.S. uh, conducts these um, uh, what are they called? Phone apps, these, uh, you know, like uh, assertions of uh, freedom, right? They they sail around the South China Sea and go, you can't stop us, can't stop us, sail through the Taiwan Strait, et cetera. Um, And the the U.S. seems really intent on, quote unquote, you know, challenging China in the South China Sea. But, you know, in an area where there are multiple islands that are disputed by sometimes, you know, three or four different countries, China may be one of them, but also Taiwan, the the Philippines, uh, Indonesia, Brunei, you know, these countries have not been as aggressive, right? And and China and the Philippines in particular, you know, they they went to a sort of international maritime court over one dispute. Uh, the actual Asian nations in with uh, disputes in the South China Sea have have seemed pretty dedicated to resolving them through court systems, you know, through the bilateral relationships. And so I wonder what it will mean for South Korea if it does become a little bit more involved in in the U.S.'s sort of aggressive moves in the sea. What is that? That seems significant to me, KJ. Well, South Korea has always been a sidekick to U.S. military adventurism. It was you know, the largest participant in the Vietnam War. Uh, it was one of the first countries to send troops to Afghanistan. So it's just more of the same South it will be the U.S., uh, you know, uh, the point of the of the spear. Regarding the South China, South China Sea is important because it is the key choke point. If the U.S. wants to bring down China, all they have to do is wage a war in the South China Sea. They don't have to win it; they just have to wage it. And the shutdown in shipping, uh, they estimate, according to Rand, would destroy uh, China's economy or at least bring it down by 25 to 35 percent. They think the cost is worth it. Regarding the phone ops, you know, the phone ops are kind of a militarized easement claim, but they have no basis in international law. The international law is actually innocent passage, which does not allow you to wave arms uh, and do gunboat diplomacy in, you know, in territorial or near territorial waters. Of course, you're absolutely right. ASEAN, uh, you know, wants a peaceful negotiation because inside the South China Sea, the claims bisect, trisect, quadriceps, and China and all the ASEAN nations actually had a process for working out these conflicts until the U.S. came in 
and and essentially threw a span into the works with the 2015 uh, private arbitral tribunal judge, which was engineered by CSIS. But all of this is escalation in South Korea, simply signaling that it will be a subcontract to, to U.S. militarism and adventurism. Uh, that doesn't sound great. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's talk about Taiwan, right? The, Joe Biden, believe it was yesterday, uh, when asked if the U.S. would defend Taiwan militarily, said yep, and said it was something the U.S. was committed to doing. His aides, of course, had to walk that back. And then today, when he was, you know, asked about the implications of that statement, he said, no, 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 the U.S. has not abandoned strategic ambiguity. Uh, we remain committed to the one China policy, et cetera, et cetera. Joe Biden certainly seems committed to undermining this strategic an- ambiguity. This is not the first time he has seemed to uh, make new Taiwan policy on the fly. And an interesting aspect of the reporting on this, KJ, is, you know, I, I think I heard on NPR this morning, uh, I'm not sure it was there, I, I can't remember exactly where, but it was saying, hey, you know, maybe the president is is doing this on purpose. He's telling us how he really feels with the implication that he's sort of winking and going, hey, uh, this is what I would I would like to do this, guys. You know, I'm a good guy. I want to go to war over Taiwan. I'm you know, that's why I keep making these quote unquote mistakes. And I wonder I wonder if you think that this is actually what is happening and if this is in any way responsible. I mean, why would why should we be commending the president or personally distancing himself from American policy? That's specifically what he is supposed to uphold. Yes, you're absolutely correct. It's incredibly responsible. I would say it's this incredibly responsible speculation on the part of NPR. Simply, the president does not get to set policy or even to signal direction of policy through how he feels. He is the elected representative of the American people or the executive. You don't get to do that kind of thing. Mm. Thing, but very clearly in 2011, um, uh, Joe Biden wrote an excellent editorial, May uh, May 2nd, 2001, in the Washington Post, and he was challenging Bush, who said it would, he Bush said he would do whatever it took to defend Taiwan, mm-hmm. and Biden said the U.S. has not been obligated to defend Taiwan since we abrogated the 1954 Mutual Defense Treaty, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the only thing that we can do. Uh, or the only thing that the TRA obliges us to do is to notify Congress and then get congressional uh, permission to to take appropriate action. So Biden clearly knows what he's uh, he knows the issue backwards and forwards. He's not misinformed. Mm. Either he's losing his faculties or he is actually actually you know releasing uh, you know what is the true policy. And three times, man, you know, perhaps three times is the charm. Mm-hmm. Very simply, he has said that he will go beyond the provision of arms because that was how the question was phrased. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this is what we're doing in Ukraine. Uh, would you go further with Taiwan? And he said, yes, mm-hmm. yes, that's our commitment. That is extraordinarily problematic because relationships with China are founded on the one China principle and the understanding that the U.S. will not weaponize China's own territory against China. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other question that this raises, of course, is what what happens 
you know, with with Japan and Australia as Biden does this, right? It, Biden is meeting with the leadership of uh, India, Japan and Australia and the quad format today. Uh, I wonder, you know, as he's doing this, what are these governments thinking? What kind of maybe uh, back channel communications are happening between these governments and China's or uh, if there are any and if, you know, the governments of Japan and Australia and some of our other allies are going to be happy to just go along with these policy changes that may be, you know, ad-libbed. Yes, uh, absolutely. Well, you know, the Quad has warned against militarizing the South China Sea, East China Sea, but it's the United States which is doing this. Because remember, all of that traffic that goes through the South China, East China Sea, most of it is headed towards China. So China has no reason to blockade or create any problems in any of it. So the U.S. idea of, you know, uh, maintaining freedom of navigation is absurd. It's fake. Mm-hmm. But absolutely, the Quad is, uh, you know, is being press ganged into heightening its, uh, you know, um, uh, it's ganging up against China. Australia is still a new government, but I think they will pretty much follow the existing trajectory they've already had. Uh, India has balked a little bit, especially regarding Ukraine, because of strong relationships with Russia. Mm-hmm. It looks mm-hmm. at the current moment that you know, the U.S. is really consolidating the Quad as uh, the most powerful military force or one of the most powerful military forces able to exert pressure against uh, China. Mm -hmm. It's very, very dangerous. The other thing that I found interesting today, this was an opinion piece in the South China Morning Post, which is not a, uh, you know, necessarily particularly uh, friendly media outlet to mainland China, right? Uh, But an opinion piece uh, points to a strategy proposed for the United States in Asia by a Trump-era DOD strategy and force development official. And the policy is summarized as a strategy of denial, and it holds that, this is a one summary of it, uh, a war over Taiwan is desirable, otherwise China's rise is unstoppable. The U.S. has a chance of winning such a war. And so China should be provoked into appearing as the aggressor. Uh, Another summary of this policy says that, you know, it says China is set on regional hegemony and eventual global dominance. War is the best or only way for the U.S. to counter China's ambitions, something we've talked about quite a lot. The U.S. has already lost economically. Uh, And that even countries that won't choose between the U.S. and China when it comes to political or economic ties would join with the U.S. in a military confrontation. And and this is the the saddest line of all, that a major war over Taiwan would stay confined to Taiwan. Like, OK, cool. It's, you know, only some Chinese people and Taiwanese people. And, you know, maybe that is one in the same thing would die. Uh, but I wonder what you make of this this policy suggestion. It does seem to it does seem to, you know, encapsulate what the administration is doing. And the question I have is, why are we doing this now, right? In the midst of our very, very expensive support for the war in Ukraine, for Ukraine, why would the U.S. consider or continue with these aggressive slips of the tongue on China, right? It does not seem like now is the best time for a war over Taiwan, even if that is a long-term goal. You know, I don't know if it's ever a good time for war. I don't think so. (laughs) I think war is always wrong. But I think you're absolutely correct. It really does encapsulate the administration's thinking. Remember, the author uh, of the strategy of denial 
um, uh, uh, Colby, uh, Elbridge Colby, mm-hmm. is was the architect of the U.S. national defense strategy in 2018. Mm-hmm. Not simply the, the the vague musings of of you know a policy wonk. Uh, I mean, this is U.S. policy. It's already reflected in operational, strategic, and tactical design as well as procurement, mm-hmm. and we see that because. One of the things that Colby has always talked about is providing Taiwan with asymmetrical weapons. Mm. Currently, in the current moment, before, Taiwan used to buy a lot of U.S. weapons, and some of them were vanity projects, some were outdated technology, etc. Just a huge, big DOD boondoggle. Mm. Currently, the U.S. is refusing Taiwan any weapon that cannot be used asymmetrically against China. So that speaks to the level of uh, escalation. But uh, what Colby is saying is absolutely correct. That they're, they're, the U.S. cannot win against China economically. China is already greater by PPP measures, purchasing power parity measures. It cannot win an arms race with China. It has to provoke a war. If it provokes a war, it has to make sure that China looks like the guilty part party in order to, you know, rally a coalition against China. And, uh, you know, why is this, why is the U.S. trying to force this choice? You know, I see this as, you know, essentially having to do with the U.S. has a doctrine of global dominance since 1992, actually earlier, but specifically enunciated in the Wolfowitz Doctrine in 1992. And the U.S. sees its power and hegemony slipping away. I think it's becoming very, very anxious, very, very panicky. If it waits too long, China becomes too big, the dragon grows its wings. And also, it's the simple fact that the U.S. and the Western economies are parasitic on the global south. When the host tries to detach the parasite from its own body, the parasite sees that as an existential threat. It has to, you know, double down. It has to, you know, dig itself in uh, deeper and harder. And I think that is what is going on. It's a terrible choice because there's no reason why the United States has to be parasitic on the global south, especially China. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. that's not the way that the ruling imperial elite think. They think uh, the loss of their supremacy is is, is worth is worse than the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also wonder if you could talk, uh, you know, speaking about the end of the world, uh, if you could talk about how U.S. and hostility between the U.S. and China is getting in the way of loosening COVID vaccine patent restrictions, because, you know, I don't want to suggest that this particular pandemic is really the end of the world, but it would be a really sad outcome of the current political situation that you can't get vaccines to countries that really want them uh, because the U.S. has to make sure that China won't benefit in any way from the process. Yes. No, this is absurd. I mean, this is really kind of the end times type of thinking. The Biden administration said it will veto a global plan that would allow uh, patent waivers and allow, uh, you know, countries to make their own COVID-19 vaccines. The U.S. said that it would veto this plan, which has been worked on for years now. KJ, can you talk more directly into your phone so we can hear you a little bit better? Yes, the Biden administration said it would veto a global plan uh, that would allow vaccine waivers unless the Chinese are specifically excluded. And, you know, this has been a huge shock to everybody. You know, the plan itself was uh, very, very, you know, uh, weak. Mm -hmm. Just to say that the U.S. seeks exclusion of China from the vaccine waiver and that China has offered to opt out that that is not sufficient 
um, you know, this is just simply indicative of how serious the U.S.-China conflict is. Essentially, the U.S. is saying we are okay to let masses, millions of people die as long as it hurts China in some fashion. Mm-hmm. This is terrible. This is in contrast with the Cold War when the Soviet Union and the, US, uh, the USSR and the, uh, and the U.S. actually collaborated to develop and distribute vaccines. We're in a very, very bad place if this is what's happening. Yeah, it does seem like there used to be more uh, guardrails on some of these cold conflicts. You know, like there was still some measure of uh, humanity that you could agree to work together on. And that seems to really have been abandoned. I, you know, I don't know if perhaps there's something I'm missing. And if I was a better student of different particular histories, I would see it. But it does it does feel that way. I also I mean, I, I feel like the China and Russia holding military drills in Northeast Asia, I feel like that message is is pretty clear. Uh, but I don't know if you want to elaborate on on what that message that said to the Biden administration as it was making this visit. Well, you know, it's, it's, once again, they're sending a message that, you know, they are uh, they have each other's backs. They're working together uh, and that, you know, the U.S. cannot separate, split or go through them one by one. Mm-hmm together. And as for the lack of guardrails, I think Kyron Skinner in the um, uh, Trump administration gave it away when she said, this is the first time that the U.S. has confronted a non-Western power. You know, she considered the Soviet Union still to be part of the tradition of the Western Enlightenment. And this is the first time that, you know, literally we're uh, facing Oriental despots. Mm -hmm. And racism is really part of the picture. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to ask, you know, I, I think an important uh, an interesting element of, do you say, uh, Elbridge Colby's uh, strategic denial policy is trying to win over countries that will not choose between China and the U.S. when it comes to economic ties. Uh, one of the things that was launched during this visit is this Indo-Pacific economic framework for prosperity, uh, something of a mouthful. The U.S., of course, withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership under Trump, uh, but they seem to want to find something that can appear to counter or offer an alternative to uh, the agreement struck in late 2020 between China and more than a dozen other nations, the regional comprehensive comprehensive economic partnership that was, you know, pretty big deal in, in uh, creating and cementing economic ties between these uh, Pacific nations. Uh, I, I wonder what you make of this new U.S. framework that was rolled out, whether it can offer a- anything uh, to, you know, to try to lure people away from some of their economic relationships with China. No, it offers very, very little. It's not even a really a free trade agreement like the RCEP or the CTPP. Remember, when the Asia pivot was started, the U.S. had an economic wing, which was the Trans-Pacific Partnership, mm-hmm. based on excluding and in, uh, excluding China and closing the economic sphere against China. And that's why Ash Carter said that it was as important as an aircraft carrier. Um, uh, the pivot uh, and the TPP was discarded by Trump, and Biden has resurrected And he's just simply rebranded the Asia pivot as the Indo-Pacific strategy. And the TPP has been rebranded as the Indo-Pacific economic framework. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly not as well thought through and well thought out as that. It's simply about allowing decoupling and creating what they call supply chain resilience, but which is really supply chain enclosure against China in foods, metals, chips, etc. Once again, we have to understand this is a purely kind of military economic military uh, strategy uh, against China, which will result in massive decoupling and tremendous pain, Mm -hmm. global pain.
KJ, we always appreciate your time. That was scholar KJ No. KJ, do you want to tell our listeners anywhere they can find some of your work? Uh, they can go on to Counterpunch Monthly, uh, review uh, online, uh, Dissident Voice, and many other progressive uh, 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 websites. All right. And we hope to speak to you again here soon on Political Misfits. We're going to take a quick break here and come back still on Radio Sputnik, still live in D.C. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou with a couple of different stories about justice, environmental justice, racial justice, and more. Joining us for all of them is Mustafa Santiago Ali. He's VP of Environmental Justice, Climate, and Community Revitalization at the National Wildlife Federation. Mustafa, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I want to start with this interesting report by the Brennan Center uh, that you shared. It looks into the intersection of politics and environmental justice. And this particular report shows how gerrymandering exacerbates the environmental ills inflicted on on some communities, and they say on some, because they're inflicted definitely more in some areas than others. And so I wondered if you could go into this a, a little bit for us, because it's one of these consequences of gerrymandering uh, that I think is really rarely talked about, the environmental consequences of uh, gerrymandering people into these sacrifice zones and then basically disenfranchising them. Well, you know, when we gerrymander, we literally take power away from people. You know, we limit their abilities around the civic process. We take away individuals um, who would often be stronger on environmental uh, and climate related pieces of legislation and sets of investments. And, you know, when we look at the gerrymandering conversation, we also understand that it is very much tied to both restrictive covenances and redlining and and zoning practices as well. Um, So we just have to understand in totality, you know, these disproportionate impacts that continue to happen to communities of color, African-American communities, Latinx communities, indigenous communities, um, and begin, hopefully, to really evolve and transform um, and make sure that everyone in our country um, knows without a shadow of a doubt um, that, you know, that their vote matters, that it's going to be honored, uh, and that there is power inside of it to make transformative change. I wonder, can you talk to us a, a little bit about some of these specific, uh, you know, environmental consequences uh, that exist for some communities rather than uh, some communities rather than others, right? I, I'm wondering about, you know, is this water pollution, air pollution, uh, degradation of the soil? Can you give us some uh, examples? Oh, without a doubt. Let's let's give context to the listeners because most folks really don't understand the significance of the impacts that are happening. I think if they right. did, they would get even more engaged. You know, we have between 100 and 200,000 people who are dying prematurely from air pollution in our country every year. More people are dying from air pollution than are dying from car crashes, than are dying from uh, you know, gun violence, that are dying from overdoses of drugs, even though overdoses of drugs is rapidly catching up. Um, and it's in places like Cancer Alley, uh, between uh, in Louisiana there, between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, uh, communities that were founded by freed enslaved people 
and now have petrochemical facilities as far as the eyes can see, and they have some of the highest cancer rates in our country. You have the Manchester community in Houston, Texas, a hardworking Latinx community. When you go there and you roll down the windows of your car, you feel like you're breathing in gasoline fumes. Uh. Um, you know, you have uh, the 48217 in Detroit. Um, so these are the injustices that are happening on, you know, on the air side of the equation. You can, and it's happening in the urban and the rural context. You can go to Institute West Virginia, um, yeah. a place that I've spent a lot of time. Um, and, and, you know, folks are dying prematurely there because of the sets of exposures that they're dealing with from many of the plants um, mm -hmm. that are there. On the water quality side, you know, we have over 60 million people over the last decade who've dealt with unsafe drinking water. Many times we'll look at Flint, Michigan, as an example um, of the devastation that happened there that did not have to happen. But you have places like Benton Harbor, Michigan, that has higher levels of lead in its water than Flint did. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that these types of things are happening all across the country. In a rural context, you have brothers and sisters who literally are, you know, walking in human waste um, mm -hmm. in places uh, throughout the Black Belt. Um, mm -hmm. You have Sand Branch, Texas, right outside of Dallas, an African-American community who for decades upon decades upon decades have been trying to get hooked up to clean water um, and have been denied it. And now their community has shrunk considerably over time. And of course, they've been exposed to all kinds of toxins. Mm -hmm. um, so again, it's in the rural, excuse me, it's in the urban and the rural context. Uh, it is happening to African-American communities. It's happening to Latinx and indigenous and Asian and Pacific Islanders. And it's also happening to lower wealth white communities. Mm -hmm. And we have to get focused because it's costing us a huge amount of money. It's host costing us lives. And it also is playing a role um, and what we see happening with the climate crisis, because when you look at black and brown uh, and other communities, these are the places that we're placing many of our greenhouse gas emitting facilities. So there is a connection, whether you live in one of those or not, to the dynamics that are playing out both across our country and now across the planet. Mm -hmm. And let me ask you about the, the political side of this, because it seems like this could be really motivational to people, right? Because gerrymandering, I mean, gerrymandering is in the news a lot, but it is also kind of a wonky topic, right? And it's there's lots of court cases and drawing lines here, drawing lines there. I, I can see how people could kind of zone out. But if the message is, look, if you're in a gerrymandered district, and you, you know, lose your power as a community to influence who represents you, you might end up in one of these environmental sacrifice zones. And then all of these, you know, uh, back and forths between uh, judges and politicians trying to draw lines, you know, becomes very personal. And I wonder if this is something that, you know, organizations who are trying to draw attention to gerrymandering, people who are trying to, you know, uh, to end the practice or, you know, redraw certain district districts, if this is something they should be picking up on to help get people more interested and more politically motivated. I think without a doubt they most that they should, you know, as we begin to put more of a human face on these issues, I'm one who believes that there are many men and women of good conscience in our country. Um, and lots of times it's just because people don't know about the injustices that are happening, whether from gerrymandering or also the impacts that are happening from the environment um, that is tied to that. Um, so I think that it is a winning combination uh, for whomever is willing to put it forward in an authentic way and then also talk about solutions um, to being able to address this. There's nothing more frustrating for folks than to see a problem and not be sure what we can do about it.
You know, I think one of the problems here, too, I blame both parties for this gerrymandering situation. One of the problems is that if you if you redivide districts, if you gerrymander districts and you make more members of Congress safe, you put them in safe districts, that's that much less money that the parties have to spend contesting districts. So even though let's let's use New York as an example, uh, the Democrats are going to lose what a seat, two seats in New York. There are a couple of uh, incumbents that are going to be running against each other, but they they come up with a plan to gerrymander the districts. And instead of a Democrat winning with 60 percent, the Democrat is going to win with 80 percent. There are fewer districts that are competitive. And even though they're going to lose a seat or two seats, um, they'll have to defend three fewer or four fewer because of the way the the new districts are going to be gerrymandered. So I think that even in the event that parties lose seats or lose representation, the fact that they no longer have to spend money in those districts makes it appealing. And honestly, that's a bastardization of the political process. It makes it so people almost aren't represented or can't be represented. Why go to the polls if you already know what the outcome is going to be? Well, I, I definitely think that it weakens democracy. Um, it does. You know, when, when we follow, you know, the t- actions that we've seen now for a while. I think it also creates these dynamics um, where we have the extremes, um, both on the left and the right, um, and which makes it even more difficult for folks to be able to do the right thing on Capitol Hill and in state houses. Um, I worked on Capitol Hill for a couple of years and, and, you know, I saw the dynamics that played out back then. This was like in 2007 and 2008. Um, And now, you know, it's just mind blowing um, how far apart people can be on what seems to be common sense types of issues, what seems to be um, without a doubt, you know, just basic human rights and, um, We've got to change this dynamic. We've got to get people back uh, to figuring out where are the commonalities. Um, and when we split folks uh, so significantly by some of the actions that we've seen, um, then it makes it so much more difficult. And the reality of the situation is, is that we are literally running out of time, um, you know, to be able to address a number of different issues that we have in front of us. Um, And and that's why, you know, we've got to get back to what democracy was supposed to be about and what it can be about um, and and making sure that there's real authenticity and honesty in there uh, and that folks know that their vote matters um, and and that, you know, that they should also be giving very significant thought uh, to the individuals um, whom are, you know, trying to garner their vote Um, when we have these these situations that we currently have, folks don't have to work um, for people's vote in many instances. And, and, and that is a disservice also uh, to democracy. It's a disservice uh, to our country. Um, and it's a disservice to, to being able to move forward uh, with a 21st century set of actions that are going to be so critical. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's a really good point. And I think sometimes, you know, it's it, it's even lost on the media that this that people should have to work for people's votes, you know, and sometimes with, with certain pet politicians, they get really treated as though, you know, how dare you expect them to give something to, to provide something to you to do something that benefits you? How dare you? It's sort of how dare you withhold your vote? 
from this politician. It's a really backwards uh, analysis, I think. Uh, Mustafa, speaking of, you know, uh, aspects of our divided society, I wanted to get your thoughts on this new um, DOJ use of force guide. The Justice Department has updated its use of force policy for the first time in 18 years, and it now tells federal agents so that's the FBI, that's the Bureau of uh, Tobacco and Firearms, it's the Bureau of Prisons and other federal agencies, that they have a duty to intervene if they see other law enforcement officials using excessive force. The memo says officers will be trained in and must recognize and act upon the affirmative duty to intervene to prevent or stop as appropriate any officer from engaging in excessive force or other use of force that violates the Constitution, other federal laws or department policies, et cetera, et cetera. This has nothing to do with local police. No. Right. This is just the, the DOJ. Uh, but I do wonder if you think it could portend some positive change. And, and before you answer, I want to add one thing. There's a case pending right now in in uh, Churchill County, Nevada. I just wrote about this last night where a, a federal prison guard reported another guard for an excessive use of force against a handcuffed prisoner. And the response from his commanding officer was. Jesus Christ, Irwine, what do you want to do? Give them a hug? They're inmates, for God's sake. Um, This prison guard was fired, despite the fact that these new regulations are coming down, and he's been unable to find another job in the state of Nevada. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the Bureau of Prisons is possibly the... the the place that this is going to have the most impact, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Uh, but so, yeah, I wonder, I wonder, Mustafa, what you make of this, right? It, could it portend some positive change or, you know, are, are policies and, and changes of language inadequate to challenging the kind of us against them culture that seems to thrive in law enforcement bodies? Well, you know, uh, I actually have a number of members of my family who are in law enforcement and I've worked with, you know, various law enforcement um, folks over the years. Um, You know, it comes down to something really basic but critical for me, and it is about trust, that we have to be able to have trust in the law enforcement system. Um, And when, you know, you have officers or agents, and of course, we're talking more on the federal level right now, that um, that folks have to be able to to trust that they are going to do the right thing and that they are going to speak up and speak out when they see injustices happening. And I think that there are ripple effects that if this um, takes takes hold, making sure that the right training is in there and that there's real accountability um, and that also that when individuals see an injustice and they speak out about it, uh, that they're not ostracized, um, but actually that they are applauded. Uh, for living up right. to what the values of a law enforcement uh, individual is supposed to be, then I believe that it will also have effect, um, you know, on more local policing uh, and county policing and state policing. We've got to get back to making sure that the basic elements that we are, you know, respecting uh, human rights and that we are not dehumanizing individuals who may be incarcerated and that we are not also dehumanizing those who are willing to stand up in law enforcement, uh, then that will begin to move us in the right direction. Um, and, and I think it will also help folks to have more trust in the system itself. Yeah, I mean, That's I think, right. let's hope. Let's hope that is what actually happens. Uh, that was Mustafa Santiago Ali, VP of Environmental Justice, Climate and Community Revitalization at the National Wildlife Federation. Mustafa, thanks so much for joining us again. We always appreciate your time. Thanks for having me.
We are going to take a break here on Political Misfits in a minute and come back. And we are going to talk in the next hour, of course, about uh, primaries. But we are also going to get into Turkey. Because Turkey, as we have predicted, as we've been talking about here on the show, is definitely starting to throw its weight around. Yes, it is. And it's doing so in more and more interesting ways. We are also, I think, going to start asking whether something that John has said he will eat his hat if it comes to pass (laughs) could actually happen. And that is, is there going to be rapprochement between uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel during the Biden administration. I think, John, I d- I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want to publicly out you as, a, as <laughs> you put a, me on the spot as an ace. Well, we'll see. We'll see. You can ask it or not in our next segment. We'll take a quick break here on Political Misfits. Uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Michelle, I don't mean to beat a dead horse. Actually, it's not even dead. Well, then it's keep still bre- it. It's still breathing. Oh, my right? God, you got work to do. But I just can't tear myself away from this Pennsylvania Senate race. Okay, is it still too close to call? It's even closer than it was. Two days ago. I just I I get to completely ignore it because I know I will get the update from you. Oh, man. One point eight million votes were cast. They're now separated. This is Dr. Oz versus uh, David McCormick. They're separated by nine hundred seventy seven votes. It's incredible. It is exciting, Uh, you know, and good for the every vote counts people. Well, the interesting thing is that David McCormick, the hedge fund billionaire, and we'll get into this with our next guest. Um, He's filed a suit because a lot of the votes that were returned uh, by mail, Mm -hmm. these uh, vote by mail uh, people, Mm -hmm. you're supposed to sign the envelope and date it. And some people didn't date it. Mm. And so the RNC is suing to have those votes disqualified Mm. because they don't want David McCormick to gain on Dr. Oz. And so... Now it's going to go to the courts. Well, there are primary elections today in five states, including Georgia, Alabama, and Texas. There are a couple of others, uh, Arkansas. They're less interesting. And it's not just the Republican races that are interesting today. Uh, We're going to start with those Republican races. In Georgia, former football player Herschel Walker is poised to win the Republican Senate nomination very easily. The last polls that were released yesterday showed him winning 66 to eight. So Herschel Walker is going to be the Republican nominee in the Senate and Georgia governor, Brian Kemp will likely defeat former Senator David Perdue. Uh, That's also not going to be close. The latest polls there show um, Perdue losing 53 to 35. Uh, It's possible, possible I wouldn't bet my next paycheck on it, but it's possible that Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene will be pulled into a runoff if she can't get 50 percent in her district. Uh, The latest polls show her in a 41 to 41 tie. There's no possible way that a Democrat can win that uh, that district in a general election. So it's all about the Republican primary there. 
In Alabama, Katie Britt and Mo Brooks are locked in a tight race for the Alabama Republican Senate nomination. That's another state where the winner of the primary is going to be the senator. The Democrat doesn't have a chance. Uh, And in Texas, Henry Cuellar, and this is an interesting one. Henry Cuellar is the last pro-life Democrat in the House of Representatives. He's in a very tough race against progressive upstart Jessica Cisneros. Some polls have Cisneros ahead. That's going to be an interesting one to Didn't watch. Pelosi go down to campaign for him to the split in the House also? Because I know yes. Progressive has, ba- has backed Cisneros. Yes. Uh, Pelosi. But the leadership is sticking with Oh, Cuellar. yeah. All three of the top Democratic leaders in the House of Representatives have gone to Texas to campaign for Cisneros, which is incredible to me. So we're joined by Brian Wright. Brian's an attorney in California, and he's a former radio host, and he follows these issues. Brian, welcome back. Well, thank you very much. Oh, we're very glad you to know, have I'm, you. Uh, I'm thinking of rebranding myself as Brian Sanity. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Hey, let's start in Georgia. Uh, there's a lot to go over there. The Republican National Committee is upset that Herschel Walker is running away with this Senate race, which is funny because they created him in the first place, right? They were looking for a big name who on whom they didn't have to spend their own money to take on Raphael Warnock. Uh, but Walker has refused to debate any of his Republican opponents. And in that same period of time, he's admitted to beating his wife. He's admitted to beating up a police officer. He's admitted that he suffers from dissociative personality disorder in which he becomes violent and then has no memory of being violent. But Mitch McConnell told Lindsey Graham yesterday that Walker was the real deal and that he was going to be a great senator. So what's the truth here? And can Walker even win in the fall against a popular and hardworking Raphael Warnock? You know, that last last question is a very difficult one, because if you look at some of the people who win, uh, rational people would say, no way ever. Hello, Tommy Tuberville. That person win. And yet, I mean, <laughs> you mentioned one of them earlier, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, sure. I mean, a bigger nutcase I don't think you can find. And yet she won the uh, nomination last time. And of course, in that district. Uh, the Republicans vote 75-25. Yeah, that's what so it was. It was She won that race 75-25 last time. It, it, it's Actually, if you look at every election, it doesn't matter who's running. No. The Republicans always 75 and the Democrat 25. That's it. Yep. So can Herschel Walker, Walker win? Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump won. Anyone can win. <laughs> it is... <laughs> Why do we have a nutcase running for Congress or Senate? And, you know, you you can answer that as well as I can. Uh, you, you forgot the fact that he plays Russian roulette. Oh, I did forget that. Yes. Yes. He's admitted to having played Russian roulette. Yeah, so this they, guy's got guys serious mental and emotional problems. Y- yes. And what has he ever done except carry a football and, and then lie? He's lied about his businesses. Yes. He's lied about his academic performance. He, but he is what the Republicans like. They like black people who support them. Yeah. They don't really care about anything else other than it's a demographic that they often don't get that they've got. It's, you know, I, I liken him to Candace Owens, although Candace Owens isn't, isn't as much a nutcase as he mm-hmm. is. 
but she her claim to fame was, I'm a black person, and I re, re, I, I support the Republican agenda. Yes, that's all it takes with the Republican Party. Yes, uh, it's the state of politics in this country is disgusting. Uh, no two ways about it. I have to agree and, with you. You know, the Washington Post yesterday, or not yesterday, it was it was in the Sunday edition. They they ran this uh, an update of this article that they run every three or four weeks on the top ten Republicans running for president. Right. And they're constantly jockeying. And like Donald Trump Jr. went from number seven to number five. And and Mike Pence went from number 10 to number seven. They're just constantly moving around. And one of the things that they that they said in there was um, uh, Senator Scott of uh, his first name escapes me. Senator Scott of South Carolina, who is a black conservative Republican, but has a reputation as being very cerebral and one of those guys who actually writes his own legislation. There aren't many on Capitol Hill. Uh, and he has said repeatedly that he's not running for president. Yet he repeatedly has appeared on this list only because he's a black conservative and the Republican Party for the Republican Party. That's so unusual and it's so valuable that they have to yes. keep him on the list because they have to constantly work to try to get him to change his mind to run for president. You know, the thing one of the things that really disturbs me about politics is this celebrity. That's all it takes I for agree. you to be a contender is for you to have name recognition. I agree. Now look at Caitlyn Jenner. Yeah, look at Caitlyn Jenner. Look at Caitlyn Jenner, who, who, I mean, what's Caitlyn Jenner famous for, other than for having been Bruce Jenner? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But but why? Because she appeared on that stupid show for how many seasons? Then then she should be governor of California? Also has a lot of money. And has a lot of money. Yeah, that's it. Well, Kanye West running for president? Right, Kanye West. Exactly. Exactly. Well, sticking with Georgia, Donald Trump made an early endorsement of uh, of sycophantic former Senator uh, David Perdue in that gubernatorial race against Brian Kemp. He's trying to punish Brian Kemp because Brian Kemp wouldn't give him Georgia in 2020 when they when they counted the uh, electoral votes. But Kemp's numbers have been consistently above 50 percent throughout the campaign. And it looks like Purdue's going to lose pretty badly. Is there a lesson here, especially in light of the fact that Trump's choice for secretary of state looks like he's going to win that race? What exactly is the lesson in Georgia that that you that you should stand up to Trump or that you shouldn't stand up to Trump? Uh, frankly, I don't think that standing up or not standing up is that significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the periphery, it may be, but uh, at least you can have some faith that people actually pay attention to what's going on as opposed to what Trump said about something. Now, in certain instances, like the, the situation with Dr. Oz, it seems to have some benefit, although Dr. Oz on his own is one of these celebrities. Yeah, right. So He's self-financed. Who, who, He's famous. Yeah. Right. He didn't need the RNC's money to run that race. No, well, it's not even the RNC's money. He doesn't necessarily need Trump's okay. Right. But I right. guess it, in his situation, it doesn't hurt. 
But I'm, I think we're seeing, and thank goodness we're seeing in some of these races, that it isn't Trump or no Trump. It's issues and personalities and people. Yes, that's so, what it comes down to. I'm hoping... I'm hoping that ultimately the lesson is that Donald Trump doesn't have that much of an influence outside of his own circle. Right. We're going to certainly because, see in the in the coming days and weeks. Hey, uh, going back over to Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, there are four other Republicans running against Marjorie Taylor Greene. One of them is a woman by the name of Jennifer Strahan. She's raised $392,000, which is a lot. But Green has raised $11.9 million, and she still has $3 million cash on hand. Strahan has the endorsement of every Republican Jewish group in America, and her goal is to keep Green under 50%, come in second, and then run against Green in a, in a runoff. The race here, of course, is in the primary, as you correctly pointed out, uh, the Republican, whoever the Republican nominee is going to be, is going to get 75%. The last time the Democrat withdrew from the race before before Election Day. Do you think there's any chance at all that Marjorie Taylor Greene could actually lose this race? Well, I don't know how much in love the people of that district are with Marjorie Taylor Greene as opposed to the Republican candidate. Of course, being an incumbent is always beneficial because incumbents have this incredible winning percentage. But I'm hoping against hope that there are enough people who see her for the nut job that she is and will put someone a little bit more sane into that position. Now, of course, 11 million versus 300,000 is uh, is a, <laughs> somewhat of an advantage. But this also goes to point to another problem that we have, and that is you can buy an election. Yes, you can buy an election. There was a fascinating piece today in the New York Times that said that um, this was an unscientific poll, but they said that they, they sent reporters to the district to talk to voters and they went to places like diners and garages and, you know, just talking to average people. And 80% 80% of the people that they spoke to said that they supported Marjorie Taylor Greene because she speaks her mind and she gives them hell in Washington and she's tough and she's strong and all this stuff. So then they read quotes from Marjorie Taylor Greene, crazy things that Marjorie Taylor Greene has said over the last two years. When told what she has actually said, that 80% support fell to 40%. And that, I think, is what is what this uh, Strahan is counting on, that she's going to be able you have, to educate. You have just voters. described one of the major problems with our political system, mm, mm-hmm. and that is most people vote without knowing what the heck they're doing. Yeah. They don't know the issues. They don't know the background. They haven't done the research. Yeah. They respond to marketing. And that's the way they vote. Is that a way to run a country? Oh, uh, not a chance. I, 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 I may have mentioned this last time. I used to be, at least at heart, a proponent of having intelligence, having some understanding of what's going on 
in order to be qualified to vote. Now, that's somewhat elitist. And, and I felt that way until I realized that smart people are just as stupid as stupid people are when it comes to politics. Uh, you, people go off of their emotion. They go off of where, where they were raised, how they were brought up. They don't sit there and analyze from an objective standpoint what to do. And I think it goes back to the old Winston Churchill saying, or at least the, the saying that was ascribed to him, in, in that democracy is the worst hmm. form of government, except for all the rest. <laughs> That's right. Hey, moving over to Alabama, Katie Britt still seems to be running ahead of Mo Brooks. Uh, this is the race where Trump endorsed Brooks and then unendorsed Brooks and then endorsed Britt. Brooks just felt like a rock in the polls, but then he came surging back in the last two weeks. The race really is about who loves Donald Trump more. Brit or Brooks, there's no viable Democrat in the race. So the winner of this primary will likely join Tommy Tuberville in the Senate. Tommy Tuberville, who said that his uh, father fought communists all over France in uh, in World War Two, not knowing that the Nazis weren't communists. Um, so what are your thoughts on, on this Alabama race? Uh to me, it's, you know, six of one or half dozen of the other. They're, they're identical, except that Britt is younger and better looking than than Brooks is. I, I don't know what else to say about this race. What are your thoughts? I think I think that you have captured the nature of the race and there's nothing more to say. It's, it's kind of like almost what does it matter? Yeah, I the hate to say that because the stakes are so high. But yeah, that's the only conclusion yeah. I can draw is what does it matter? Yeah. Yeah. And to a degree, that is what's happened in this party system. Totally. Yes. It almost doesn't matter who the person is. Yes. It's what party wins and then the pressure that they exert on the individuals to toe the party line. Yeah. And let me tell you something. That's not what the the founders envisioned when they set up this system. I agree. But this is what we've come to. Yeah, I agree. Hey, let's talk about this race between Henry Cuellar and uh, Jessica Cisneros. So Henry Cuellar is the son of Henry Cuellar Sr., who was in the House of Representatives for like 150 years. Uh, Cisneros has the endorsement of the squad and the endorsements of a variety of progressive groups. But Cuellar has the endorsement of Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and Jim Clyburn. So this is a race between the old and the new. Uh, what does what Cisneros win mean for the Democrats? Because she, she looks like she could actually win this thing today. Well, that's actually going to be surprising to me because out of Texas to have a progressive anything is yeah, very surprising. It's tough, yeah. But... I'm also wondering if the race isn't going to center on the abortion issue, because Cuellar is, I think, the lone Democrat congressperson yes. who is anti-abortion, and mm -hmm. Cisneros is pro-abortion. Right. So it's going to be interesting to see how this thing plays out as to whether abortion is going to be an issue in the upcoming general election. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that's what it's going to come down to. Um, Pennsylvania, but, uh, my, my home state and where my greatest interest in politics uh, lies. There's a Republican civil war going on in Pennsylvania right now. The Senate race there is still to be decided. 
TV quack uh, Dr. Oz, 977 votes ahead of hedge fund billionaire David McCormick out of 1.8 million votes cast, as I said. Now the Republican National Committee is suing McCormick to stop absentee votes that don't have a date on the envelope from being counted. The latest polls show the Democrats just killing the Republicans in both the Senate race and in the gubernatorial race. Uh, the Democrats have come up with, uh, it was, I think it was three million. Was it three or six million? Anyway, a lot, a lot of money um, to hit the gubernatorial uh, nominee, Doug Mastriano, on the abortion issue. It's just going to be abortion, abortion, abortion in this race. This is not what the rest of the country looks like right now. So why the dichotomy, do you think? Why, why are the races different in Pennsylvania than they are elsewhere around America? Well, I think it goes back to the red and blue state thing. Uh, some states are, it's almost like you're talking about California. You know, why is California right. different? Well, it's because the Democrats have a very strong foothold in California. Uh, I think Pennsylvania is probably the same thing. It's uh, we're looking at the uh, the flip side of the Georgia race, uh, the Marjorie Taylor Greene, where it kind of doesn't matter who the candidate is, the the party is going to win. That's my impression about what's going on in Pennsylvania. I have to tell Michelle too. I don't know if you saw the news this morning about our old friend Madison Cawthorn, but he, he's in even <laughs> so bigger trouble. Uh, than he was a week ago. You know, he made this stupid statement about calling deep MAGA yeah, or dark, dark, dark MAGA, MAGA to come rise. forward, must rise. That's just silliness. He's in trouble because there are three separate ethics committee complaints that have been filed against him. We know about the cryptocurrency. Wasn't that, was it Brandon Coin? Something like that? Yeah, Brandon yeah, Coin. Okay. Yeah, we know about the Brandon Coin, which was, he he may be guilty of insider trading. But it turns out that he had an affair with someone in his office, somebody directly under his supervision, oh. uh-huh. which makes sense because his wife left him after being married for eight months. Yeah. And nobody understood why. Well, he was having an affair with someone in the office. And again, one of my least favorite things is sort of delving into politicians' personal lives yeah. and sort of sexual foibles. But right. Sure, go on. Yeah. Is there another one? Third one? Uh, yeah, there was a third one, uh, and I don't remember what it was, uh, but Ronnie Jackson has a, a complaint against him, and some congressman from Ohio that I never heard of has a complaint against him. Uh, now, the only one who made a statement was Madison Cawthorn saying, it's uh, the left is going after me because they hate that I love my country and all this nonsense. The thing is- No, this is the Republicans. It's the Republicans sure. yeah. because the ethics committee is divided equally between the two parties, right? Ethics is the only ethics and intelligence are the only committees that are evenly divided because we, we want bipartisanship in ethics and intelligence and the vote to investigate him was unanimous. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Madison. I Madison mean, needs to stop you know, talking. I will. I it, there, it could reach a point where you start to feel some sympathy for this guy, not on a sort of, I mean, whatever, not because I think he's a good person or anything. But again, it's like, look at all of this firepower trained on someone who is so powerless, yes. right? He's a single term congressman. He didn't do anything important. Didn't no. get to do anything. He was nowhere near. Never, never passed having, any legislation into law. Nowhere near having any real power. Yeah. No. 
And so he's now because he's this spectacle, right? Yeah. And the Republicans don't want him to embarrass them anymore. Of course, I'm glad to have someone out of Congress who, you know, says things like women should be happy as a, a vessel for creation and whatever. You know, I mean, I disagree with his politics and I'm glad that he's not in there anymore. But it's always the the powerless, right? The embarrassing, but ultimately completely pointless people who get all of this firepower turned on them. Be great to see Mitch McConnell investigated yeah, for some seriously. of the ethics breaches. I am qu- quite sure you could find uh, between him and his wife, but yeah, without a doubt. But yeah, it'll be Madison Cawthorn. He'll suck up all that energy. You know, Brian, when I was working, when I was working in the uh, Dirksen Senate Office Building uh, on the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee staff, uh, Mitch McConnell's house was only four doors down, four townhouse doors down from the office building. He had a, a bright red painted uh, front door and he used to have a limousine drive him the hundred feet from his door to the office building every day people would laugh and point at him i'll tell you what was that what was that movie it was a movie about california about los angeles um a famous comedian whose name slips my mind at the moment who was going to visit a neighbor down the street you know three doors down the street from him and he got in his car to drive the three doors down, <laughs> basically you know, play, playing on the thing of in California, you drive everywhere, you never walk. Yes. Yes, indeed. Oh, my God. I don't know if you had a chance to see the L.A. Times this morning, Brian, but they said that that California Governor Gavin Newsom had a very narrow window to seek the presidency. There, There's talk now preliminary talk in Washington that maybe Joe Biden's just not up for uh, for another race. And maybe even though he's told people that he's running for reelection, he told Barack Obama two weeks ago he's running for reelection, that maybe that's not in the best interests of the Democratic Party or the country. So people are beginning to talk about alternatives. And uh, of course, Gavin Newsom is a part of that conversation. So the LA Times said this morning that he had this very narrow window to seek the presidency. I wanted to ask you, what do you think that means, a narrow window? Why is it narrow? And can you see a scenario where Newsom is a serious contender for the presidential nomination in the near future? Well, Newsom has denied interest in the position. Yes, and I think repeatedly. that was one of the things involved in, uh, in the recall. Um, and frankly, this talk about only now, are they talking about Biden might not, might not be the guy? They should have been talking about that three and a half years ago. Not, <laughs> That's you know, right. Six months, after, six, six months after he took office. Um, and I'll tell you, I was concerned about Biden uh, from the beginning, uh, but I also determined that a corpse would be a better president than Trump. So yeah. I figured we got Biden at least. Um, but uh, I think from the narrow window standpoint, it's if you look at the path, who he has to go through to get the nomination, uh, that uh, you have Kamala Harris, uh, who might uh, be the candidate after Biden and other people who might be in front of him in the Democratic Party to take the reins on the presidential run. That's why I think what they're talking narrow window. It's if he wants to do it, he better do it. Otherwise, there are going to be too many people standing in line in front of him. Yeah. But then again, this is one of the things that bothers me about politics is this idea that part of, and this is why I think Biden ended up getting the nomination. It's kind of he was in line. 
Right. You know, and it's funny that you say that because usually that's the way the Republican nomination is handled. You know, nobody believed in 1996 that Bob Dole was going to be president of the United States. But Bob Dole had put in his time and it was his turn to be the the nominee. Um, John McCain lost in 2000 and was a good soldier about it. And so in 2008, it was his turn, even if nobody believed he could beat Barack Obama. Usually the Democrats are the ones who scrap it out and have a real fight. And the Republicans have a coronation. Well, it was the opposite in uh, 2020 where people believed it was Biden's turn and uh, and they gave it to him. You know, and and nobody really believed he was going to be this, you know, amazing historic president, but it was his turn. Yep. Uh, One last question for you. We have about uh, a minute left, a minute and a half left. Uh, There's been a lot of talk about about Republicans trying to focus on uh, on California. They they've walked away from California over the course of the last 20 or 25 years. And, you know, California used to be a Republican state. Uh, even after the state itself had gone Democratic, there were large pockets of 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 territory like Orange County, for example, or the Inland Empire, where Republicans were really ascendant. That's not the case anymore. Uh, do you think the Republicans ought to be spending time and money trying to win races in California or sh- should they focus elsewhere? I think all parties should spend time and money everywhere. This yeah, idea I agree. of giving up. It, it just it, it makes no sense to no, me. It's, nothing good yes, comes it, of it. It serves money. It conserves money, but it's not the way the process was supposed to work. And if you simply give up without a fight, you're never going to get anywhere. So yeah, I don't know. I, I can't recommend ever saying no. I'm forget it. Yeah, I agree. This is how this is how George McGovern ended up serving three terms in the U.S. Senate from South Dakota. He was a liberal Democrat in one of the most conservative Republican states in America because at the time, the Democratic Party was spending money to be competitive in all 50 states. And by and large, they just don't do that anymore. Okay, well, that was the voice of Brian Wright. Brian's an attorney in California and a former radio host. Thanks for being with us, Brian. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come back. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Michelle, there have been a couple of interesting, more minor stories, but still stories worth talking about. Yeah, one that got uh, a bunch of attention happened yesterday when a foreign reporter, a foreign reporter who has been cleared, who travels, yeah. uh, you know, with, with U.S. officials, yep. uh, had his phone seized during a flight to Europe with Deputy Secretary of State Kathleen Hicks. This is Idris Ali. Uh, he's a foreign policy reporter for Reuters, covers the Pentagon, said on Twitter he was stopped from using electronics due to a policy barring non-U.S. reporters from using devices on government planes. Yeah. 
And so he said, this is the first time I'd experienced this. I've been on dozens of Pentagon trips. I've covered three administrations. And if you take away my phone and you take away my computer and you take away everything I used to work, I can't do my job, which is writing stories as they as they are unfolding. Yep. Um, it seems that uh, the they apologized afterward and said that there was some kind of mistake. But it's interesting that this is a new policy. I right. mean, you have to think this has to do with. I don't know. I mean, you have to think this has to do with China, really. Like they've been, you know, who knows, actually. But that was where my mind went to, especially when they've been trying to ban, you know, ban TikTok. Sure. Ban Huawei. Huawei. Mm -hmm. Oh, you can't use Chinese made phones. Right. It's all going directly back to Xi Jinping who's just sitting right. in front of a giant computer, you know, looking at Americans <laughs> metadata. Yeah. Well, Michelle, Turkey has also been in the news a great deal over the past several days. Turkish President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan said late last week that he would not permit Sweden and Finland to join NATO unless uh, they expel Turkish Kurds and other dissidents who live in those countries and send them back to Turkey to face trial. That's a non-starter. It's not going to happen. Erdogan also said that Turkey will launch a new military operation in Syria soon to connect two patches of Syrian territory already under Turkish control. Erdogan said that he'll visit Saudi Arabia in the coming weeks to meet with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and MBS is going to reciprocate with a visit to Turkey, Greece, Cyprus, Egypt, and Jordan. That's a big deal. Meanwhile, Turkey's relations with Greece took a turn for the worse this week after Greek Prime Minister Kostas Mitsotakis told a joint session of Congress that Greece opposed the sale of F-16 fighter jets to Turkey. Well, we're joined by Elijah Magnier, and I hope I'm saying Elijah's name correctly. Elijah's a, a veteran war journalist, 35 plus years in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Sudan, and Yugoslavia. We can't ask for a better expert to talk about these issues. Welcome, Elijah. Hello, and thank you for having me. Yes, you're pronouncing my name correctly. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, let's begin with what's motivating President Erdogan. He seems angry over the fact that Turkey hasn't been or hadn't been consulted over the Swedish and Finnish NATO applications. He seems angry that nobody is taking his protestations of Gulenist threats seriously. Is that really what this is all about, or is this a negotiating tactic? Actually, it's much more complicated than that. Oh. So we have to understand that the first priority of the Americans today is to win the European prize of creating a new colonialism system in Europe, particularly when the U.S. is very busy in Ukraine and dragging, trying to drag Russia in it. That is extremely relative and related to what's happening in Turkey and Erdogan's decision. So the Americans have managed to unite NATO, or at least apparently for now, and prepare for two countries to join in. However, no country can join the 30 already existing country without the 30 parliament of all these countries unite yes. and agree and accept of, of, for the new coming. That's why Erdogan is going to be consulted, because that's the duty and the regulation of NATO. However, he's saying, I'm not going to accept because of the PKK, the, the Kurds, that he considered they are terrorists. The Americans consider them they are terrorist groups. Mm -hmm. And the Europeans have them also on the list of terrorism. Yes. Now, let's look at 
what is really happen, happening here. The Americans will not give up on this golden opportunity to bring more NATO country, more countries into NATO. And Erdogan understands this very well, as everybody, including us. So for him, it's a golden opportunity to say to Sweden, you have 11 PKK uh, officials or responsible or leaders that I want uh, to, uh, I want them back and want them to be delivered to me. That is not true because America has Fatallah Gulen. They have been supporting the PKK in Syria. The uh, YGP, the uh, Turkish, the mm -hmm. Kurdish Syrian are the PKK branch in Syria. Mm -hmm. And they have been widely uh, offering uh, military equipments and intelligence and support on the ground. And the PKK is protecting the, European, the uh, American and European troop, French yes. and British troop in Syria. So this is not really the demand because he should starting uh, start first with asking the Americans to stop their support to the PKK, which he did not do. Mm -hmm. Therefore, what he's doing now is he's saying two things. First, he's saying, I want to, uh, for one and a half of the three million refugee, Syrian refugee to return to Syria. And second, he just said today that he's starting a new operation as a, to create a 30 kilometers buffer zone between Turkey and Syria. So basically what he's saying yeah. is yeah. he wants to occupy a part of Syria when everybody is busy and nobody has the courage to say no, including Russia. Oh, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I can see that. And and historically, buffer zones have been very important to the Turkish military. There was a, a buffer zone that actually worked out quite well in northern Iraq. And the Turks have been talking about a buffer zone in, in Syria for years. That makes perfect sense to me. Uh, Erdogan has been working hard to improve relations with Saudi Arabia. And this has been going on for many months now. Uh, but to what end do you believe? What What is it that he hopes to get out of a visit to Jeddah uh, to meet with Mohammed bin Salman? That's a very good question is related to the first presentation that I have offered. For Turkey that occupy 9% of the Syrian territory today, it needs to bring back the refugee, but it needs money to do that. Mm -hmm. Turkey is not generous, doesn't have enough money to do so and wants to revive the idea that it's possible to overthrow President Bashar Assad, or at least come and support the Syrian refugee. So he's going to the Emirates and he's going to the Saudis because they have the money and he wants them to finance his ambitions. So when he considered always Aleppo and Idlib as part of Turkey and really Turkish provinces, he cannot sustain the life of uh, several million of uh, Syrians in these areas who today use the Turkish money. The people in Turkey are complaining about the refugee. So he's hitting so many birds in one stone. And this is why this rapprochement with Saudi Arabia. Uh, however, the Saudis understand that. And they're not that stupid to come to Turkey and say, oh, okay, we can support you to overthrow yeah. the president that will not be overthrown, that 80 nations were involved in a war to remove President Assad and install Al-Qaeda and ISIS in his place. And uh, we give you the money to, to uh, annex a part of uh, Syria and to bother the Russian there that today they're not our enemy. They did not vote against the 
Russian at the United Nations, and they want to create a balance. So all that is not going to happen, uh, which is the path related to the finance that he's looking for. However, it is going to happen. We're going to see Turkey's occupying more territory. That's only because the Americans can't say no. Second, Joe Biden followed exactly Donald Trump's policy in northeast Syria by occupying a very rich agriculture and energy area, preventing uh, Damascus and uh, 12, 13 million people from surviving. And the other objective is uh, Turkey is offering to the Saudis, saying that, well, we can reduce the Iranian influence in the country. Another joke, because Saudi Arabia will regain diplomatic relationship with Tehran and no longer consider removing uh, the Iranian influence from Syria is an achievable, an achievable objective that the Americans and everybody, even the Israelis, uh, have given up on. Right. Turkish relations with Greece have been worsening lately. I follow this every single day in the media. Uh, Mitsotakis specifically asked Congress to not sell F-16s to Turkey. Uh, in fact, there's been a, a pause on the sale of F-16s to Turkey for quite some time now. Yesterday, Erdogan said that he would no longer speak to Mitsotakis. Uh, this was a, a banner headline in all of the Greek newspapers. Uh, and today, the leader of the Turkish Nationalist Party said that Turkey should withdraw from NATO or should at least consider withdrawing from NATO. Is it possible to get past these differences? Certainly, Greek-Turkish relations are cyclical. They have their ups and downs uh, constantly. Uh, they're rarely good, but this seems particularly troubling. Uh, do you see any improvements on the horizon? No, it's good for these countries within NATO not to agree always among themselves, particularly we're talking here about Good Europe point. and Turkey, because Turkey uh, has never been considered part of Europe, although it is within the European continent. Uh, the, uh, Turkey has been always uh, carrying a very special uh, uh, situation and title for the European countries. It's a necessary evil to remain within NATO. It is good to keep the refugees away will never leave in NATO because uh, it's an opportunity to be part of the West whenever it's suitable for President Erdogan to have a foot in the West and in the East. And um, I think these differences uh, can be overcome because we still have another year for the election in Turkey. Yes. So anything that's happening domestically and the relationship with Greece has never been good to have so many problems even the exploitation of the oil and the common maritime area. So that will remain. It's part of the business as usual. You know, obviously the biggest problem between Greece and Turkey is the status of, of Cyprus. Uh, yesterday, I, I went to sort of update myself on the situation in Cyprus and saw that politically it's really not good. Uh, there are no direct uh, talks taking place, at least on a regular basis. And it's the same kind of, of rhetoric that uh, that both sides have been hurling at each other for many, many years. Uh, 
Is there any reason at all to be optimistic about uh, a potential move forward or a breakthrough of some sort, political breakthrough in Cyprus? Or is this going to continue to be the source of, of trouble in the Greek-Turkish relationship? Since 1974, the problem of Cyprus uh, exists and will continue existing. Mm-hmm. Under President uh, Erdogan, Turkey will never withdraw an inch from right. any country or any land that is occupied. Erdogan's ideas and objectives are really uh, an imperialist view of the world, and he wants to expand. He consider even part of Iraq as part of Turkey, Mosul and Kirkuk. Yes. So he's not going to let go of Cyprus. I think you're right. I think you're exactly right. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Erdogan's uh, political standing in Turkey? Is he popular? He's been very heavy-handed toward the opposition since the coup attempt. Uh, Have there been any lasting effects? Well, no, there are many uh, groups that are coming out uh, with many voices against uh, Erdogan's policy. One of these main issues are the Syrian refugees. So Mm. that also brings us back to the first question. By saying that I'm going to ask one and a half million refugees, Syrian refugees, to be removed from Turkey and send them back to Syria, that also, again, hitting several birds in one stone Mm -hmm. by saying to the people in uh, domestically that the problem with the local currency and the, the job opportunities Uh, were affected by the presence of these uh, uh, refugees that I am going to remove at least half of them and bring them back to Syria. So, yes, he is working on the domestic issues, but it's still early. We still have one month and two, one year and two months for the uh, local elections, and he will have many maneuvers to do particularly when he's starting to create a buffer zone in Syria that will give him more popularity among the nationalists. Mm-hmm. And uh, perhaps he will go toward Iraq, but the Iraqis will, will, are waiting for him. So some of the, res- the Iraqi resistance will not uh, have him to have an easy way in Iraq. So we still have time for the election and for the domestic uh, power and uh, dynamic and struggle in the country. Okay, Elijah Magnier, thank you so much for joining us. Elijah is a veteran war correspondent with more than 35 years of experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Sudan, and Yugoslavia. Uh, We are going to take a short break. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, sliding in a last few headlines before we get out of here for the day. And the one that caught my eye, didn't see this this morning, ISIS plot to assassinate George W. Bush in Texas? Yeah, how do you like that? 20 years late, maybe. I mean, I thought they might have moved on to other targets at this point. Yeah, this guy Uh, is in Columbus, Ohio. He's an Iraqi 
uh, American, I guess. A Rocky uh, man in the U.S. I don't see that he's actually American. A Rocky man in the U.S., yeah. that's right. Yeah. Lives in Columbus, Ohio. He told two people that he wanted to assassinate George W. Bush. Both of the people he told turned out to be FBI informants, oh, which darn. is oftentimes the yeah, case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was kind of funny, like in a in a an upside down, backward way that the the guy flew to Dallas to take video of George W. Bush's uh, the neighborhood around his office. He went to Crawford and took video uh, around the uh, the Bush Ranch, and he was communicating with these guys over WhatsApp. And so um, apparently he was pretty easily caught. Yeah. Yeah. An interesting angle on this story is perhaps the use of WhatsApp. Right. Yeah. And I having having only come across the headline minutes ago, I'm not going to pretend to understand what it reveals. But at least according to Forbes, it says it shows how the FBI, despite its claims of being prevented from investigating major crimes because of Meta and other tech providers use of encryption. Right. Was able to work around WhatsApp security by using old school policing with sourcing of informants and tracking the metadata they can get from the messaging company. So at least on first blush, this reporter's assessment is that this wasn't done through backdoor, you know, cracking no. into WhatsApp, no. but by having people on the ground talking to this guy That's and the doing, way it should some, be. doing some footwork. That's so, the way it should be. Hey, good old fashioned police work. Wow. Are we are we saying good job, FBI? <laughs> Is that what we're ending the show on today, John? Well, I feel, like, as is frequently so the case, weird. as is frequently the case, the the person he's not even been arrested; he's been detained. Mm-hmm. But as is frequently the case, uh, the guy's not a rocket scientist and uh, made mistake after mistake after mistake. Uh, yeah, he uh, he was trying to recruit these two FBI informants to help him. He was going to bring ISIS people into the country. And I, sh- I should say that Forbes is reporting that that this Iraqi man has been here since 2020. Uh, he's applied for asylum, political asylum, refugee status. That status is pending. Um, but what he wanted to do is bring in more ISIS people. He wanted to either steal police badges or fabricate police badges, go down to Texas pretending to be police officers and uh, get in close enough to George W. Bush that they could kill him. And then they were going to he was going to smuggle his compatriots across the border into Mexico and live happily. Ever some after. real hijinks. And again, of course, these are all allegations and this is all information coming from a search warrant filed by the FBI That's right. that was unsealed in the Southern District of Ohio. Uh, but yeah, who knew people were paying so much attention to, to George Bush these days? I thought he just got to paint. <laughs> Put his foot in his mouth over a rack or not, right. you know, a little sort of like, well, OK, I, you know what? I'm in on the joke, too, guys. Uh, a couple other interesting stories here. One, a, a drug, a new drug appears yep. to help people with alopecia regrow hair, like yes. regrow a lot of it. This was uh, it's a drug by the company Concert Pharmaceuticals. Uh, they did a it's a stage three trial. I think it's the the only alopecia drug. It's in stage three trials right now. Uh-huh. Uh, it used uh, 700 adults with moderate to severe alopecia. And I believe 42 percent of them regrew a whole bunch of hair, which is great. That's for impressive. People, you know, you know, um, Rogaine was originally developed as a blood pressure medication. And in tests, it had no effect on blood pressure, but the people taking it began to grow hair on the palms of their hands. And so 
they hmm. they changed it from a pill to a cream and instead of full strength they they put it to 10% in the cream and that's how we got Rogaine and it works. I see it is possible that Eli Lilly and Pfizer have late stage trial results for uh, their own alopecia treatment drugs but yeah that would be great for people if, yeah. you know having yeah. some control hair Good. hair makes you feel yes like a regular person. That's so right. That would be cool. You ever to see, see The Simpsons where where Homer uh, got uh, some Rogaine by yes. committing uh, Changed pharmaceutical his life. fraud? Changed his life. But he it, became successful. Yeah, but he wasn't the real Homer, was he? No. Wasn't well, a he lesson changed in the his end. name temporarily to Max Power, which he saw in his <laughs> hair dryer. <laughs> The other story here, uh, this is just a, a grotesque story uh, involving a Trump child uh, and hunting, right? So yeah, boy, all a terrible, terrible combination. Yeah, this is a story about a Utah hunting guide, Wade Lemon, who, again, is accused of doing this thing. He faces five years in state prison for the death of a bear during a guided hunt in 2018. It was uh, Donald Trump Jr. who killed the bear. And Donald Trump Jr. is actually, uh, you know, he, other than wanting to go hunting and kill the bear, is not a, a part alleged to have been part of this plot. This right. is just all on the guide right. uh, that he illegally baited the bear. And so yeah. he put out a bunch of grain and honey and other stuff that bears yeah. like to eat so that, you know, Donald Trump Jr. could have a big, beautiful animal to kill, to kill. instead of having to do the actual work of, of hunt it and find where it was and sneak up on it. They baited it. So uh, just a, yeah, just a really gross, gross story, gross practice. Don't, kill big animals unless they're attacking you. I think that's. Yeah, I, I don't understand that. He got in trouble, I don't know, five years ago uh, for doing something similar in Africa and and uh, shooting. What was it? Was it an elephant or a lion? It was a it was a lion. Mm -hmm. He shot a lion the same way. Was he was the, he accused of. Uh, oh, yeah, he was accused of going to a place where the lines are the lines are drugged, right? That's or right. otherwise yeah. baited. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, just sign of real uh, moral degradation. Crazy. If that's something that makes you feel big I, and powerful. I don't understand how anybody can gain pleasure from that. It's disgusting. It's because you're a disgusting person. Yeah. I have friends who are hunters, by the way, who like to hunt animal, you know, animals that are plentiful in North sure. America, hunt them for food. Sure. I don't particularly want to do that, but yeah. that is not the same as big game trophy hunting. No, no and it's I not. think that's foul. You know, we actually have more deer now in America than we had during the time of the Revolutionary War. And, uh, you know, because we, we've driven all their predators out of their environments. That, that's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. And so, you know, people go out and hunt for food. I have a cousin who's an avid hunter. He eats everything that he hunts, whether it's deer or boar or whatever. Um, so power to him. But but tricking a tricking a bear with, you know, pastries and fruits and grains and stuff. It's it's just it's really immoral. despicable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what the guy has to say in his defense uh, in along the lines of saying, good job, FBI, maybe I'm going to say, I think I'm siding with Nancy Pelosi here on being denied uh, communion. Uh, the, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I misunderstood you for a second. I'm totally with Nancy Pelosi on this. Yeah, she was she was denied. Uh, the Archbishop of San Francisco said he yeah. would deny her communion over her support for abortion rights. That's right. a pretty big deal. If you're Catholic, you know, not being able to take communion is a, is a big thing. 
Uh, obviously, the, the church opposes abortion. Nancy Pelosi said, I wonder about the death penalty. I'm also opposed to that. So is the church. But they take no action against people who may not share their view. She's exactly right. I think she's exactly right. And I'd like to hear the archbishop's explanation for his DUI last month in San Diego. Ooh, there goes John making it personal. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that is. I, that's obviously political. This archbishop seems to be uh, extremely conservative. So. I just there we go making strange bedfellows today, John. Let me see if there's anybody else uh, who I can can just momentarily side with. No, I don't know. I don't think I can find anyone else there. Did you see this story about uh, an AirPod rupturing a child's eardrum? No. This was look, I've seen this in a bunch of like sort of tech news places. So I don't think this is fake. It was an Amber Alert. Uh, apparently, a 12-year-old boy was watching a movie on Netflix with his iPhone connected to uh, AirPods. Uh, and the Amber Alert that came on was so piercing that it damaged his eardrums. Oh and so gosh. now Apple is facing a lawsuit. This is actually from California in 2020. Uh, and they're saying that they, you know, he's ever since he's suffered hearing loss, he's suffered dizziness, nausea, vertigo, tinnitus. He has to wear hearing aids now. Oh, my gosh. And uh, the lawsuit says that Apple is aware that its iPods don't lower the sound of Amber Alerts the way they're supposed to or that defective ones don't. And that Apple didn't include a warning for the potential issue that users might face. And so as a result, this 12 year old boy has permanent hearing loss. Oh, the poor kid. Yeah. So we'll see what happens in this lawsuit, but more bad news for for Apple, which, you know, is just watching its stock slide like yeah. all the other tech stocks. Yeah, uh, it really is. Yeah, it really is. Uh, oh, my goodness. We are almost done here. I want to highlight a story we're going to talk about tomorrow, uh, something that sort of slipped past us. But this pretty consequential decision by the Fifth Circuit Court, yes. a n- notoriously conservative court of appeals. Very, very conservative. Uh, that could be just the, the a crucial remove a crucial brick from the scaffolding of the administrative state and our ability to regulate industry efficiently and effectively. Uh, it's a conversation that sort of slipped past people last week, but uh, we are, we're not going to let it elude us anymore. We're going to get into it no matter how legally tricky the concepts and language are. I'm committed to. I'm with you. And we can do it. Them. Yeah. We can do it. We can do it. Yes. You'll just have to wait till tomorrow for it because we're out of here thank you to all of our guests and our engineers here thank you uh, uh yeah thanks again to our guests and on behalf of john kiriaku and myself michelle witty thank you for listening we will see you tomorrow bye everybody <laughs>